Your reading this morning is from Deuteronomy. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of all the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you should put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at the time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make a response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven, and bless your people Israel with the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Well, please join me in prayer. Father, we, we remember before you that you are our God, we remember before you that you are a God who speaks to us. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would help us to listen, that you would help us to hear your voice. Hear your voice as a child hears his father. That you would help us to become more and more the children of God you've already made us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
good with the mic? Do we have the mic or? Do we hear me now? Okay, no. I will. I will use this one. All right. So, um, if you have been with us uh, in uh, uh, the study of Deuteronomy over the last, I don't know, it's been since January that we've been focusing on this middle section. Um, you might remember that we have been kind of thinking about this this larger idea of of the way that we are meant to live. Uh, we've talked about stuff like justice, um, sex and household, rest, and, and all of these things, it's not just been about trying to figure out rules, right? That, you know, that's, that's not the goal. The goal is actually, as we look through Deuteronomy, to understand that it's showing us the way that is good, the life that we want. And, and when we start doing that, when we start thinking about, hey, what is the life that is good that we want, inevitably we come across, we come across the gap. And what I mean by the gap is there is this thing that we want. We know this is the life that we want to live. And then the other side of it is the fact that this is the life that we do live. And it's not the same thing, right? We know that it's like, so, so we know that it is good for us not to keep buying and consuming, but to maybe be simpler and to give away more. And yet the life we live doesn't look like that. We, we know it's good for us to not just be busy, that there's value in this idea of rest, that we were made for rest, and yet we just keep going and going and going. We know that we don't want to lose our temper. We want to be gentle. And yet we know the reality. There is this gap between the life that we want, that is the good life that is being shown to us in Deuteronomy, and, and the life that we have. And, and the question is, what do we do with that? H how do we bridge that gap? How can we move into the life that God has for us, the good life that we seem so resistant to? And I would suggest, actually, the passage that we just read is meant to help us to answer that. So, as I said, there's this section from 12 to 26 that really is kind of the, the center of all of the instruction that Deuteronomy has. So 26 is the end. It's the culmination. And there's kind of something surprising, I think. If we were to try to imagine, as after all of these instructions, how do you think this would conclude? We might think there's like some sort of ethical summary. Okay, here's all the things you need to know about how to do. But notice, that's not what happens. What we have at the end of this section is a ritual. If you've been with us for a little while, you might remember that, that rituals, we talked about this, you know, I think in January, uh, are something that are just distinctly human. It is these repeated patterns that we have that help us, oftentimes physically, to interact with things that are hard for us to truly connect with. So if you think about, I mean, what does it look like to love a nation? We have kind of patriotic rituals to connect us with that. How do we grieve? We have rituals in the funeral that helps us to kind of engage with that. And, and here, I would suggest we have a ritual that is meant to help us to understand the nature of the relationship we have with God. And the key to understanding specifically what it is helping us connect with comes in that very first verse. If you don't have your bulletins open, I invite you to do so as so you can just kind of see as we slowly move along. Well, especially the second half, we'll be looking at this closely. But, but notice that opening verse. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, now that word is important. It doesn't have to be there if you think about it just grammatically. It could just be when you come to the Lord, the, uh, the land that the Lord your God is giving you. But it specifies as an inheritance. Now who gets inheritance, especially who inherits land? It's children. 
This is a, a ritual. It is, it is a set of practice designed to help Israel understand what it means that they are children of God. And, and here's where I think we need to go. Here's, I think, the, the significance of this. Here, and I'd say throughout Scripture, we are taught that we will not ever learn to live like children of God until we know that we are children of God. We will never learn how to live like we are children of God until we know that we are children of God. So I've been saying that Deuteronomy obviously has lots of instructions. That's often what people think of when they think of Deuteronomy. But there has been this other theme that has been woven throughout this book. And I just want to kind of pick up on it right now. So chapter 1, when it speaks about, the, you know, like Moses tells the story, he says, He, that is God, loved your fathers, and he chose you, their offspring. A few chapters later in chapter 7, it says, It was not because you were more numerous that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, but it is simply because the Lord loves you. Or near the very end in chapter 33, as Moses has his final words, here's what he says, The Lord came from Sinai and he loved his people. Do you hear again and again, we are being told, God loves you, Israel. And, and we're actually told the specific kind of love that God has. So it says in chapter 1 again, In the wilderness the Lord your God carried you, how as a man carries his son. A few chapters later it says, You are the people of God's inheritance. In other words, you are my heirs, you are my children. And in case we miss it in chapter 14, it explicitly says, You, Israelites, you are the sons the Lord your God. Something extraordinary has taken place. God sees this people, this people who are needy, and he loves them. And he adopts them, and he makes them his children. He says, you are mine, I am your father, come and enter into my home. That's metaphorically what the land of Canaan is. It is welcoming people into his home. And in this passage, chapter 26, there is a word that comes up again and again. The land the Lord your God gave, he gave, he gave. All of this is to signify this extraordinary reality that he is now your father, and he loves to give. And when you think about that idea, it begins to make sense that you would need rituals because it is not an idea that comes naturally. I was reading a, a little while ago a story of someone who, um, some parents who had a, a young biological child, but they decided to adopt another child. So they adopted a child, five-year-old from Russia, and there was this initial joy of seeing this kid and, and welcoming her into their home, but that joy turned to just some very complicated emotions because this child would regularly have these outbursts, violent, terrifying, rage, and, and the parents didn't know what to do, and it actually kind of crescendoed into this moment where the five-year-old threw her new sister down the stairs. Thankfully, she wasn't injured, but, but what do you do with that? And in this, in this article, it was saying this is not that uncommon. When, when someone is adopted from a context where they have not been treated well, they bring with them into their new situation survival behaviors. 
Until this point, it is up to them to fight for themselves. Until this point, they do not have anyone that has shown that they are trustworthy in love. And so that is how they work. They work with fear. They work with protection. That's how they live. And the moment they move into this new house, it's not like suddenly that switch turns off. It's still there. They are not yet able to learn. They're not able to live like a child of that family because they don't yet know that they are a part of that. And if we think about the story of Israel, we see something very similar, don't we? I mean, I think about what happened before this moment that we're talking about. For generations, Israel was not only in Egypt, but they were slaves, where they were valued not for being human beings, but just for the stuff that they did. And Pharaoh was not just a king. Pharaoh was seen in Egypt as a representative of the gods, which means culturally you're surrounded with the vision of deity where he was nothing but capricious and cruel, and your only hope was to figure out how to kind of manipulate and work with what you saw as deity. That was the life that they had lived. And, and so when this thing happens where, where they cry out to God and God sees and he hears and he rescues them and he says, I am your father, you are my children, I am bringing you home. They don't just turn a switch. They still have this instinct of, of fear and self-protection they know how to fight for themselves. What they do not know is how to trust. They know how to try to manipulate and defend against deity. What they, what they don't know how to do is trust that the single most important and powerful person in the universe loves them and wants to give and to give and to give. When we sometimes look and ask, how could it be that Israel could just keep on missing it like this? We need to recognize they have a hard time learning how to act like children of God because they do not yet know that they are children of God. And before we are too judgmental, I think it's probably worth recognizing that we, we are not that different. Now, of course, we haven't been slaves in Egypt, but how many of us in different ways have, have taken in a different way of functioning, a different way of seeing things that is counter to this reality? I've shared before, I think, that when I was you know, in elementary school, I was a socially awkward kid, and, and as a result, I was not very well received by my peers. I struggled with that. And as I look back on it now, I, I, I've realized that there is a part of me that kind of came to be trained, came to believe that the way to function in this life was to just so prove yourself, so make yourself important that people would have to want to be with you. Some of you have had probably relationships with your parents where you have parents who Maybe they were trying their best, but are demanding and critical. And, and now, as you are growing, there's a part of you that is just doing everything it can to prove them wrong. Or some of you have had some significant experience in your past, some, something horrible. Maybe, maybe someone died, or maybe some form of trauma, and there is a part of you now that's saying, whatever I do, I'm going to make sure that never, ever happens to me again. See, each of us have these, or at least many of us do. There are these, these survival behaviors. There's a thousand different versions of them, and each of them in their own way are teaching us that we have to fight for ourselves, that we have to make ourselves loved, that we have to make ourselves happy. And then we hear 
the gospel invading our lives saying none of that is true. That no matter who you are or what you have done, you have a God who loves you. Who has rescued you by giving his son so that you might be his children and that you might experience his love and his goodness forever and ever. And we hear that and we still hold on to our former ways. We still hold on to these survival behaviors. We, those of us who are Christians, those of us who, are come, who have come to believe this gospel, there is a part of us still likely that does not yet believe it. That still feels like we need to fight, that we need to protect, that we need to hold on. We still have these survival behaviors. Our struggle, the reason that we have this gap is because we will not be able to live like children of God until we know that we are children of God. Returning to the story I was talking about before, the same article speaks of how after there was this, this, this terrifying blow-up with a child being thrown down the stairs, they finally found a counselor who was able to give, the parents that is, who was able to give the parents some, some necessary advice. And so as, as they moved forward, whenever the child that was the adopted child would have these blow-ups, they, they would learn what to do. Once, once she had kind of like vented herself but was still kind of activated, they would just hold her, hold her far longer than felt natural. And once she had finally come down to just like this, this low, you know, like this calm place, they would look her in the eye and talk and try to understand. Again and again and again, the same practice they would do again and again and again. And slowly she began to open up and talk about what had happened to her. And slowly she began to trust and fit in with the family. She needed first through these practices to come to understand that she was a child and then she could live differently, a child of that family. And I want to suggest that we have something very similar here in these rituals that we have in chapter 26. And our time this morning, we'll only have time to look at the first one. I'd love to talk about 12 through 15. Maybe that's another week. But just 1 through 11, I want us to see this ritual that is meant to help Israel understand that they are children. Not because we are going to start doing this ritual. I'm not saying next week let's bring a basket and some grain and let's do this thing. But more, if we understand what this is meant to do, it can help us to understand what it looks like for us. How do we, what does it look like for us to know that we are children of God? So first, let's just notice what, what the ritual is. So it starts on usually Pentecost, the 50th day um, after Passover, when the grain has first just come up. You, the very first grain that is now able to be harvested, they take that grain, and every household, and they put it in a basket. And, and the father and the rest of the household, and they travel down to wherever the tabernacle or later the temple will be, the place that God had said, this is where I am placing my name, where I'm going to dwell. And, and once they get there, carrying the basket, the father representing the family comes to the high priest. The high priest is like the liaison, the one who's representing God to the people. And, and he says, a very rehearsed, this is what they'll say every year, I declare today to the Lord your God, that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And saying that, he brings the basket, the grain, and, and the priest receives the basket. And then he takes it and he brings it to the altar of God, signifying on God's behalf that God receives this gift that they've come to bring him. 
And then the man and his family, I think, move towards the altar, and perhaps they grab the, the basket again now that they know that they have been received by God. And they begin, he begins kind of a larger speech, starting with, a wandering Aramean was my father. And starting with that story of Jacob, he goes on to speak of what happened in Egypt, of, of the slavery, of the suffering, of, of God bringing them out, of God bringing them finally into this land. And then it concludes with this final statement, and behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given to me. And after saying all of this, this, this testimony to God himself, he and his family would worship bowing down on the ground. And after a time of doing that, perhaps even speaking words of praise and gratitude, it says they would rejoice. They would go and they would have a feast together, relishing, delighting in the goodness of God. Every year, year after year, as they enter the inheritance, they do this to teach them. And, and I would like us just to see just a few things about what this practice, what this ritual shows us about what it looks like to know that we are children of God. First of all, in, in, in these events, we see that knowing that we are children of God involves moving from the abstract to the concrete. Whenever we talk about stuff like this, when we talk about the love of God, when we talk about God adopting us, when we talk about just God who we can't see, one of the real challenges is just it feels so not real, right? There, there's something out there and, and, and disconnected. And the problem is that's not actually how we connect with reality. We connect with reality through Things that we can touch and see. I mean, this is why teachers who are trying to teach math don't just start telling the numbers and explaining what the numbers are. They give them blocks or things to count, things that you can touch because that's how we interact with reality. This is why people who like history will visit places like Gettysburg because to actually be there, to smell it, to stand in it, it feels more real. This is why even when two people love each other, they don't just say that they love each other, they give each other hugs. Because that is a physical way of expressing this reality that we have a hard time otherwise engaging with. We are physical creatures who need concrete things for us to understand them. And notice how, how utterly concrete this ritual is. It starts with the land they are living in, the crops that they have been growing for a while. They take the very first bit and they stick it in a basket, and they go for a journey, and they go to the place, the place that they know that God will receive it. And there's this very active thing that goes on where the priest receives on behalf of God, and where they feel that reality that they are bringing God a gift. Now, to be clear about this, the gift is not something that God needs. This is not, this is not the people doing God a favor because he's hungry. Now this, what's going on here is very similar to when a little kid at kindergarten makes this drawing that no one fully understands, but he gives it to his dad, and his dad looks at it and smiles and frames it and puts it on the office. He's not putting it in the office because he knows it's going to be worth millions someday. He's putting it in the office because he's received this gift. It is a connection that he has with his son or his daughter. 
And that's what's going on here. This gift that God's people are bringing is being received by God. He is smiling upon the gift saying, yes, I welcome this gift from my child. And so all of these things, these are all very physical things where dots are being connected between the physical reality of this life and this deeper reality of what it means to be children of God. Dots are being connected so that the physical stuff like the earth that they work and and the grain that they are grinding and the flour that they make into bread and they eat and all of this as they are enjoying it, they're saying, we have a father who gave us all of this and he loves us. And when they are working and sometimes giving either in tithe, which is what the the next ritual is about, or bringing it to God here, they are saying, and we love our God and love to do things for him in service to him. There are these dots that are being connected between the stuff of life, the work, the gifts, and the reality of God being our Father. And I would suggest for us, we need something similar. We need to be able to connect dots between the stuff of our life and this deeper reality. This, by the way, is the reason that Christians throughout the world have this tradition of every time we eat, we give thanks. So that as we taste and as we get full, we can remember this comes from a God who loves us. This is also why we have this practice of every week coming together and not just listening to podcasts or meeting online because when we see each other, we see this reality that we are part of this larger family of a God who loves us. For us to know that we are children of God, we need to move from just abstract ideas to to connecting dots with the concrete mundane things of this life. Secondly, as we look at this practice, we see that for us to know that we are children of God, we need to move from general truths to personal reality. So do you notice that there is this one word, at least for me, is striking throughout the whole liturgy, the things that are said by the person on behalf of the family. It's a very simple word, and that word is I. I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land. Now, that's interesting. This is something that's repeated year after year, generations later, that I have come into the land. Well, literally, you didn't. Israel did generations ago. But this is you saying, this is true of me as well. I have come into the land that the land swore to our fathers to give us. And then after telling this whole kind of long description of what took place, notice how it concludes. And behold, now I bring the first fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. This is not just some general vague truth. This is personal. You know, I think sometimes it feels safer for us to talk in general ways about religion or faith or whatever we want to talk about. We talk about the eternal God. We talk about Jesus dying for sins. And, and those things are true and they are worthy of reflection. But if that's where we stop, our faith has not gone far enough. We need to say more than that God is eternal. We need to say that God is eternal and he is our God. He is my God and my Father. We need to say more than that Jesus died for sins. You and I need to be able to say, Jesus died for me. Do you feel the difference between that? Is that something that you have ever said? Or is that something that you say to yourself? I want to ask you, 
I know we're Presbyterian, we don't usually do like uh, audience participation. So I'll allow you just to do this in like the quiet of your minds and your heart. You don't have to say anything out loud. But I'd love for you to just try this, to say this to yourself in your mind. God knows me and loves me, and he is my father. Now try saying this, Jesus died for me, and he is my older brother. Do you, do you feel the difference of that, the power of that? That's, that's reality. And until that reality descends and we can say it's not just stuff out there, but that I, I am forgiven, I am loved, I am being watched over, and I do not need to be afraid. Until we can say that, it hasn't descended where it needs to be. To be a child of God, to know that we are children of God, we need to move from the general to the personal. And finally, uh, to know that we are children of God, we need to move from timeless truths to story. Because while sometimes, especially if we're philosophical, we like to speak in terms of timeless truths, that is not actually how we work in an experiential level. We are storied creatures. Let me just give a, a silly example. Let's just say tomorrow morning you wake up, and as you kind of like wipe your eyes, you notice that there is a sound above your head. It's like this kind of like, like scratching sound, and like occasionally a pitter-patter, and you realize it's coming from the ceiling and your heart sinks in that moment. Now, why does your heart sink in that moment? It's not like suddenly you're in pain, no one has attacked you, you're not sick. But in that moment where you realize there is a rodent above the ceiling, your entire story for the next day has changed. Your story, you used to see this as a safe fortress and now it is invaded by enemies. You thought your day would be one where you are victoriously getting stuff done, and now you realize that your day is going to be about talking to the exterminator and figuring out how to deal with that. Your story has changed in your mind, and that changes everything for you. It changes how you feel. It changes how you act. That's how it works. We are shaped by our stories. And it's significant to me when we look at what's going on here, that all of this, this entire ritual is about situating people into the bigger story that they might not otherwise see. It starts by saying, it's not just about me, my father, Jacob, he was my father. That's where the story begins. It's not just my life, it's bigger than that. My father was a wandering Aramean. And then soon thereafter, like every good story, we have, we have the enemy, we have the conflict. Egypt, Egypt has treated us horribly. We were helpless. And then the hero enters, the hero is God. And it speaks of this story of what God has done. Three different things are especially highlight God, the hero of the story. When we cried out, he heard us. And he saw our suffering. God, the hero of this story, when we were overwhelmed by power that was too great for us, he was more powerful and he was conquering and victorious over all of our enemies. And God, this God, has welcomed us into a land flowing with milk and honey. This God 
is a generous God. That is the hero of our story. And then it concludes with this flourish where it is situating me, I, and now I today appear before you, God, because you have done this for me and given me these things. Do, do you see what's going on? Every year, this ritual is inviting people to return back to this larger story that they have a bigger picture than what's just going on in the moment that they have a God who has loved them, that they have a God who has rescued them, that this land is an ongoing reminder of the story that they are a part of where God is their father and they are his children. And boy, don't you and I need that. It's so hard, isn't it, to, 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 keep, to keep track of that. This week, I was having, I suppose you could say, a typically maybe a slightly more busy week than normal, but nothing onerous, and all the things that I was busy with, I was wanting to be doing. But as I look back, I think there was within me this, uh, here's the story I was telling. I am the stoic person who will just get through. It was not an interesting story. No one wanted to read the novel, but that was the story I was telling about myself. But then one night when I was just kind of trying to unwind, I was reading a, a novel. Um, it's a kid's novel, Andrew Peterson, the Wing Feather uh, series. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but it's a fantasy series where the basic idea is that these people who are living are living in a world that is overcome by evil. There are these monsters, the fangs, that are making everything miserable, but there is this recollection, this memory that's almost to the point of legend that once things were different, once upon a time things were different. And there's this moment in the story where, where this character who kind of steps out of the legend and, and meets these people, and there's this sense that people are just overwhelmed, and one person says, is it really you? I hoped, I dreamed but it all seemed too good to be true. And then he responds, the person who's kind of stepped out of the past almost, he says, don't you mean it's too good not to be true? And there was something about that moment that suddenly I was brought back to this larger story that I'd forgotten. And I remembered once again, yes, I am part of a story that is so good it can't but be true. I am part of a story where I have been loved, where, where Jesus, where God hears me when I cry, even if I don't feel like it. He sees everything I'm going through, and there is nothing I need to be afraid of because he is stronger than all my enemies, and every day he is showing his kindness to me. He is, his, he is my father and I'm his child, and one day all will be made right, and that is certainty, and that, that is my story. And in that moment, in just a slightly different way, I felt more like a child of God. Don't we need this? Don't we need again and again? We get so stuck in our own ways that we tell the story where it's just about us and we just have to fight and we just have to make it. And the reality is there's this beautiful story that started long before we were born and is going to bring us to something far beyond what we can see. And it is good because we are children of a God who is good and loves us and gave his son for us. So what is my point in all this? We, we feel we feel this gap, we feel this frustration where we realize that there is a life that we could live that we don't and we don't know why. And what I'd like to suggest is at least part of it is because we're still living in a lie. We are still like that child holding on to survival instincts, fighting out of fear and self-protection 
and a lack of trust when we could just, if we could see it and taste it, have a different way before us. You and I, we need to connect the dots to our life. We need to know that this is true of me. We need to tell a different story. Because it's only as we know that we are children of God that we are able to live like children of God.